Hello and welcome to Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. I'm Ian Masters, and today we'll examine a number of stories and issues in the news. We'll begin with day one of the Supreme Court's new term today, with the expectation that more contentious rulings will be coming that could be as bad or worse than the precedent-breaking rulings in the last term. Joining us is Eric Siegel, a professor of law at Georgia State University College of Law. He's the author of Supreme Myths, Why the Supreme Court is Not a Court and Its Justices Are Not Judges, and Originalism as Faith, and he's also the host of the Supreme Myths podcast. We'll discuss concerns expressed by Justice Kagan that the court's legitimacy is now in question, which prompted Chief Justice Roberts to suggest such criticism was a mistake, and a rebuke from Justice Alito saying that questioning the court's integrity crosses an important line. Then, with consumers in California paying twice as much per gallon for gasoline as the rest of the country because refineries are now producing less without explaining why, we will look into what Governor Newsom is describing as extortion, with the five refiners ripping off the public while making more money for delivering less product. Joining us is Jamie Court, the president of Consumer Watchdog, a consumer group that has been fighting corrupt corporations and crooked politicians since 1985. He has led dozens of major political campaigns to reform insurers, banks, technology companies, oil companies, utilities and political practices, and Capital Weekly named him to its top 100 list of unelected movers and shakers in California politics. His latest book is The Progressive's Guide to Raising Hell, How to Win Grassroots Campaigns, Pass Ballot Box Laws, and Get the Change You Voted For. Then finally, with President Biden expected to survey the damage from Hurricane Ian in Florida on Wednesday, we'll assess what kind of new building codes could be implemented to prevent further losses of lives and property, or whether it makes sense to build high-rises on the ocean fronts, often eliminating wetlands and mangroves, which are a natural barrier to storms that are increasingly devastating due to climate change. Joining us is Sung Reng Peng, a professor and the director of the International Centre for Adaption Planning and Design in the Department of Urban and Regional Planning at the University of Florida, where he conducts research in adaptation planning for climate change like sea level rise and extreme weather. And before we go to our first guest, this program is completely independent without corporate sponsors and advertising relying entirely on your support. So we ask you to take a moment and visit backgroundbriefing.org slash donate or go to our nonprofit media foundation at publictruthmedia.org where you can keep us online and on the air on a growing number of stations for as little as $5 a month. Help sustain us into the future so that we can continue to provide breaking news analysis from the most knowledgeable guests at home and abroad. And we've made it easier for you to donate simply by credit card at backgroundbriefing.org slash donate, where your tax-deductible contributions make this program possible. And joining us now is Eric Siegel, a professor of law at Georgia State University College of Law. He's the author of Supreme Myths, Why the Supreme Court is Not a Court and Its Justices Are Not Judges, and Originalism as Faith. And he's also the host of the Supreme Myths podcast. Welcome to Background Briefing, Eric Siegel. Uh, thank, thanks for being back, Ian. Well, thanks for joining us. And uh, the Supreme Court begins its new term today. And there's an expectation that it could even be, if not as contentious, even more contentious than the last 
term which is really saying something. And there have been, of course, some criticism coming, not just from the public, but from uh, Justice Elena Kagan. She said recently that precedent is the foundation stone of law, a doctrine of stability that tells people they can rely on the law. But if all of a sudden everything is up for grabs, all of a sudden very fundamental principles of law are being overthrown, then people have the right to say, you know what's going on here? That doesn't seem very lawlike. And then later at a, at a, uh, and then at a university in Rhode Island, she said, the court shouldn't be wandering around just inserting itself into every hot button issue in America, and it especially shouldn't be doing that in a way that reflects one set of political views over another. And of course, that prompted the Chief Justice John Roberts to complain that lately the criticism has been phrased in terms of the legitimacy of the court and that he said is a mistake. And then, of course, um, Justice uh, Alito was even more outspoken, wasn't he, Eric? Uh, yes, he, well, he was. He always is. And uh, the thing about Alito is, in a term where the Supreme Court reverses Roe versus Wade, and in a term where religious favoritism was clearly present at the court, for Justice Alito to go to Rome, of all places, to strongly criticize those criticizing the court, it's a very Alito thing to do. This infighting among the justices, they're not calling each other out by name. That would, I think that would be a, really a new thing. But we know what Roberts is saying. We know what Kagan is saying. Justice Kagan, Ian, is very frustrating. She went through a few years where she would concur in some pretty important cases and she would say the following. I don't agree with the majority. I think this case should come out differently. But there is a binding precedent, and we're a court of the rule of law, and I'm going to follow that binding precedent even if I don't agree with it. Her strategy, I think everybody thought, was to get the court to be more reluctant to overturn Roe and Casey and a few other cases like the affirmative action cases. The court's going to hear this term, and, she was, and she's been met with those pleas by one of the most activist, aggressive Supreme Courts in history, and that's why she's really frustrated. So give us a brief summary of why your book is Supreme Myths, why the Supreme Court is not a court and its justices are not judges. So this is where I get in trouble with some progressives, and I want to identify myself as a progressive. The left today is talking about restructuring the court and adding justices and all of that because they are saying the people on the court are bad. Now, I agree that these conservative justices are doing a terrible job, but the problem is not that we have bad justices, Ian. The problem is we have a fatally flawed institution. For one thing, it violates one of the most obvious rules of democracy that I think every single one of your listeners will agree with. Never, ever give government officials unreviewable power or largely unreviewable power for life. No other country does that. We're the only democracy in the world that gives government officials who hold their jobs for life a lot of power. That's a real problem. In addition, we have the oldest written constitution in the world that governs the country, the very oldest. It is full of vague and imprecise phrases like due process, equal protection, free exercise, establishment of religion, phrases that don't define themselves. So put those things, and we have a long tradition of judges getting in the way of things, like in 1857, when Congress wanted to end slavery in the territories pursuant to an express textual power in Article 4, 
giving Congress the power to make rules for the territories. In 1857, the Supreme Court said, no, you can't do that for no good legal reason. And since then, we've had a strong tradition of judicial review. So put all of that in a hopper, and what you get is a broken institution for a democracy. People with enormous power who we don't elect, we can't fire, serve for life, interpreting impossibly vague phrases. Now, there is one constraint they have. And it's a real constraint. I want your listeners to understand this. This is a real constraint on their discretion. They can only do what they can get away with. And by that, I mean, even Alexander Hamilton said way back, you know, um, in, in, federal, in the Federalist Papers, that if the president or the Congress or the American people lose faith with the court, the court has no purse and no sword. It has no money to enforce. It has no money and it has no military to enforce its orders. That's a real constraint, but it's a political constraint. It's an ideological constraint. It's kind of a prediction constraint. It's not a legal constraint. And we're seeing that because this Supreme Court is way out of touch with the median center-left, center-right voter in the United States. And this is what happened in 1935. And when it happened in 1935, after the New Deal, when they were striking down FDR's New Deal programs when he won re-election in 1936. The rhetoric he used to describe the Supreme Court, the president of the United States, in 1936 was much stronger than anything we have today. He said the, ju- the court is full of aged and infirm men. And he said we have to save the country from the court and we have to save the Constitution from the court. Progressives in 1935 were just as angry as they are today. My point about that is the court is broken. And until we have a nonpartisan way of restructuring the court, we're going to go through these terrible cycles and the court's going to play much too large a role in our society. And I'm sorry for that long monologue. Well, no, let's touch then on the 1935 situation where the country's in dire straits with a deep depression, massive poverty, hunger, dislocation and an economy in free fall, and uh, the government was trying to restore, the, you know, <laughs> some sense of, you know, normalcy to the life of, of, of endangered Americans, and this Supreme Court was striking down everything that uh, FDR was trying, and he was obviously was improvising, but it, it was doing so in a crisis. So you couldn't have a more egregious example of, you know, judicial activism well, 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 can I respond to that real quick? Because sure. I just want to say, I want to, be, I want to be fair. They didn't strike down everything FDR was doing. In fact, they upheld a good chunk of the New Deal. But they did strike down a good chunk of it. And the New Deal was a well-thought, I think, a well-thought-out kind of organized plan to get us out of the Depression. Cutting off its legs, obviously, as you just said, got in the way of that. So I just wanted to be clear about that. I also wanted to say... I, I don't know if what they did during the New Deal was worse than, A, telling Congress it can't abolish slavery in the territories. That was just a you know, Dred Scott is considered the worst case ever. And two, the court took the Reconstruction Amendments, the 13th, 14th and 15th Amendments, which were obviously passed to help the newly freed slaves integrate into American society and be equal under the law. And within 30 years of those amendments, maybe 25 years. They stopped protecting blacks. They reaffirmed separate but equal. And they turned the 14th Amendment into an amendment that protected railroads, banks, 
and big companies and turned it away from helping African-Americans and blacks. That was really, really bad, too. So I'm not I'm not in any way disagreeing with you that what what the court did in the, in the Depression was terrible. It's been terrible many, many times. Right. Now, making corporate personhood. Exactly. But let's follow up, though, on the historical analogy where FDR, in effect, took to the radio, and that's what, what was the main, main media back then, and educated the American people. And as you said, he was very forceful. No such thing is happening now with President Biden, even though the public and the progressives are very upset about this court and the direction it's heading. And, and some of these cases that are coming up in this new term could be really damaging, you know, particularly this, uh, what's it called again? This North Carolina... Independent state legislature. Terrible, terrible. So, so, that, so that's my question about the FDR, is that he both educated and, and stood up and motivated the American people. And as you pointed out, that was what Hamilton said, was the only choice we have if the court goes in an errant direction. So why is Biden not doing anything? So that's a great question. I try to stay in my lane, and I can't say I am an expert on presidential power throughout time. What I will say as a fairly educated person in that area is, of course, Biden is no FDR. That's not a criticism of Biden. How many presidents were FDR? You know, Lincoln, you know, uh, Washington. I mean, there aren't that many. He's, he's, in a, he's in a pretty rarefied air. But the other thing about Joe Biden that people have to understand is he doesn't believe there's something wrong with the Supreme Court. He just believes there's something wrong with the people on the Supreme Court. And those are two very different things. And that's what's so frustrating for me in that I don't think he's getting the right advice. I, and he surrounded himself by people who are generally speaking court apologists in the sense of if we just put the right people on the court, everything will be hunky-dory. American history shows that's not true. The Warren Court, which progressives liked, which Joe Biden liked, which the people who he surrounded himself with liked, the Warren Court did a lot of things to usher in Richard Nixon, to usher in Ronald Reagan, and maybe even to usher in Donald Trump in some indirect ways. So there's always hell to pay when the court does too much for the progressive side. Now, remember, what FDR was advocating was for the court to get out of the way. He wasn't advocating for the court to do aggressive things. The Warren Court did aggressive things. Um, and that's why it, there's a big payback in the political spectrum. I think what's best for America, and this is a nonpartisan comment, what's best for America is a weak Supreme Court when it comes to constitutional law that steps in only when absolutely necessary. And none of these cases almost are absolutely necessary. And here's the thing. That's not just Siegel's idea. That is exactly what Alexander Hamilton said. He said, to somebody who was objecting, this guy named Brutus, who has a pen name, who said, don't ratify the Constitution. It makes judges too strong. Hamilton said, don't worry about it. They're not going to play that big a role. The president is going to be there to check them, and they're only going to invalidate laws when there's an obvious and clear inconsistency. Unfortunately, Hamilton's predictions were wrong. Brutus's predictions were right. And until Joe Biden realizes that the problem runs deeper, than the wholly partisan Republicans we have on the court right now. And I'll give you an example, Ian, if you don't mind, really fast. I, I, I believe Ruth 
I believe Ruth Bader Ginsburg is an American hero. And I believe Justice Thurgood Marshall is an American hero. But, but both of them became American heroes before they got to the Supreme Court. Marshall, of course, litigated Brown versus Board of Education. That took many, many years. And he did it brilliantly. Ruth Bader Ginsburg is the most important litigator in the history of America for gender equality. Before they ever got on the court, they were and are American heroes. They get to the Supreme Court with their life tenure. They vote liberal 99% of the time. How can it be that the Constitution 99% of the time in political cases is liberal and progressive and exactly lines up with the ideology of, of Marshall and Ginsburg? That's just as crazy as Thomas and Alito voting conservative 99% of the time, because there's no way the Constitution means what they think it means 99% of the time. And that goes back to where we started. Don't give government officials with unreviewable power life tenure. Joe Biden has to really get that, and he doesn't. So what do you do about the situation that Justice Elena Kagan pointed out? at the university in Rhode Island recently, the court shouldn't be wandering around just inserting itself into every hot-button issue in America and especially shouldn't be doing that in a way that reflects one set of political views over another. So what you do about it is very, very complicated and very, very hard. Um, I suggested in a blog post I wrote a few months ago that it might be time for the President of the United States to simply disobey a court order. And the place that Biden, I think, could probably get away with that is in these cases where the court is cutting back on the EPA's ability to handle climate change. In fact, that there was a case today that was argued in front of the Supreme Court about the EPA's ability to regulate various you know, waters. And if the court says, no, you can't do it, but the president does it anyway, and Congress backs the president, there is nothing the Supreme Court can do. Now, I understand that that brings us to a very precipitous moment in American history where a president says the Supreme Court has made its decision, but I get my own view on what the Constitution means or what a federal statute means, and it doesn't mean this. But I'm not sure we can be much worse off than we are now, Ian. This term, the court is going to probably remove Congress from having the power to regulate state elections when it comes to racial discrimination. In the very same term, they may very well remove state Supreme Courts from regulating redistricting and racial issues. So think about that for a minute. This Republican Supreme Court is going to give all the power to state legislatures. And of course, state legislatures in this country, in many states, are diehard Republicans. That's not a coincidence. And those two cases together could really change the political landscape of this country. I think it's coming. And something has to give, and it's not going to be easy, and there's going to be some um, real crisis. But I, I think it's time for the American people to say enough is enough in a not in a, in a not in a peaceful. Don't get me wrong. I am no way advocating violence. But it's about time the president does what FDR did, which is we have to save the court from the country, the country from the court. Excuse me. So just in closing, then, this is a court that Leonard Leo has created, one man with very, very ultra-conservative Opus Dei kind of beliefs, and he's done it with dark money from plutocrats. So this is a court that has literally been bought anonymously. So isn't that a problem? Well, it's a big problem, but it's not a new problem. For one thing, Supreme Court uh, presidents have always picked their cronies to be Supreme Court justices. 
Harry Truman I played poker with his justices. I mean, it's I agree the dark money thing is a problem. There's also dark money on the left. Don't get don't get me wrong. It works both ways. The problem is Leonard Leo is much better at this than anybody on the left, and he seems to have more money than anybody on the left. Um, but again, that problem would go away or at least be minimized if we change the structure of the Supreme Court and made it far less powerful than it is. That's really where the answer lies. And by the way, Kagan saying that very much implying that the court isn't acting like a court. So, you know, that's the book I wrote, that the Supreme Court is not a court. The Supreme Court has never acted like a court because it doesn't take prior law seriously. And I want to end with this. Ian, if you were on the Supreme Court, or if I was on the Supreme Court, and we had this amount of power for life, and we felt, I feel very strongly about abortion. I feel that women need to have the right to have an abortion for them to be equal in this country. I feel passionately about it. If that issue came before me, I would choose my heartfelt belief about abortion over whatever the law is. Or if I felt very strongly about affirmative action one way or the other, I would do whatever it took to you know, institute my values into law, because why not? I have unreviewable power and a job for life. That's the problem. And no other court in the world has it, by the way. No other court in the world ever in world history has had judges with a lot of power, an old constitution, an, an, a constitution that you, that's very hard to amend. Um, and and we're, we're, we're reaping the, the, the terribleness of that institution. So Kagan had a point. But you know what would happen tomorrow if they did pack the court with three more Democrat justices? Kagan would vote to overturn the campaign finance decisions, for example, that you, that you dislike so much, and so do I. The liberals would vote to overturn a lot of cases that the conservatives have decided over the last 10 years. It's just too tempting when you have a, a job for life and largely unreviewable power. And I'm sorry to be a broken record, but no other court's ever had that. In world history, no court has ever had that. Well, Eric Siegel, I thank you very much for joining us here today. My pleasure, and thanks for having me. And again, I've been speaking with Eric Siegel, who's a professor of law at Georgia State University College of Law. He's the author of Supreme Myths, Why the Supreme Court is Not a Court and Its Justices Are Not Judges, and Originalism as Faith. And he's also the host of the Supreme Myths podcast. We're going to take a brief station break and back looking into why consumers in California are paying twice as much per gallon for gasoline than the rest of the country, because refineries are ripping off the public while making more money for delivering less product. Tell it to the judge on Sunday. Tell it to him, leave me alone. Tell it to the judge on Sunday. And they don't get settled by riding with hoods through the 
Welcome back, I'm Ian Masters and this is Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. And joining us now is Jamie Court, the president of Consumer Watchdog, a consumer group that has been fighting corrupt corporations and crooked politicians since 1985. He has led major political campaigns to reform insurers, banks, technology companies, oil companies, utilities and political practices. And Capital Weekly has named him in its top 100 list of unelected movers and shakers in California politics. And his latest book is The Progressive Guide to Raising Hell, How to Win Grassroots Campaigns, Pass Ballot Box Laws, and Get the Change You Voted For. Welcome to Background Briefing, Jamie Court. Great to be back. Well, thanks for joining us, Jamie. And is there an explanation for why here in the state of California... We are paying almost just twice as much as what the rest of the country is paying for gasoline. On uh, Monday morning, uh, we reached a record of $6.466 a gallon, according to the AAA website. And the average price across California stands at $6.38 for a gallon. And compare that to the national average, which is $3.80 a gallon. So what's going on? Uh, there is an explanation. It's greed, pure and simple. The oil refiners in this state have such a grip on this state that they are charging us uh, more and more and more and more. There are five oil refiners. They make 97% of the gasoline in the state. And when a refinery goes down for planned and unplanned maintenance, and they have those both in effect right now, it makes gas more scarce and they have an opportunity to charge more for it. Now, it doesn't cost them any more to make it, but they charge more for it. They're the only industry in America that when their factories go down, they make more money on their product. So their factories go down, they make more money on their product. But there's something really insidious going on here. Our, our, as you said, we're inching up to like $3 more than the U.S. price of gas. The biggest gap we've ever had was $1.50 more than the U.S. price of gas. And that was after a refinery went down for a year and a half that fed about 15% of uh, Southern California. That was in 2015. So something is really, really wrong in the market. What it is, I believe, is that the oil refiners are trying to force Californians to, to, to pay more to punish them because the legislature enacted some reforms. They didn't like this last year. They don't add any more cost to the price of a gallon of gas. But I think the oil refiners are trying to make a statement. Uh, we had a law, for instance, that requires oil uh, companies can't drill within 3,200 feet of a school or a community or a home. And they got really angry. They're even referendering, referendering that. They're filing a referendum against it, meaning they go to the ballot and they can undo that law if they collect enough signatures in the next 90 days. They are really angry and they're taking it out on us. And the governor knows this and the governor actually has done the right thing. Earlier in the week, we called on him to do a special session of the legislature and enact a windfall profit tax. And by Friday, he actually came out in a video saying, I think we need a windfall profit tax. If the oil refiners are going to punish us like this, if they're going to try to charge us this, we're going to take that money back. They're not going to be able to keep that money. So we are now in a game of chicken with the oil refiners. And the fact that the governor is engaged is really, really good news for us. What the governor said on Friday in the, in the video that he released is, the fact is they're ripping you off. Their record profits are coming at your expense. The, a windfall profit tax would ensure these profits go directly back to help millions of Californians who are paying for this oil company extortion. The degree of diversion from the national prices has never happened before, and oil companies provide no explanation. 
we're not going to stand by while greedy oil companies fleece Californians. So them's are fighting words, right? They are fighting words, and I'm glad they're fighting words because someone's got to fight for the consumer. You know, we have a we have new law that we have passed this year. The governor just signed it about a week and a half ago, Senate Bill 1322 by Ben Allen, and it requires oil refiners to post their monthly profits per gallon starting in January. And getting that bill out, this is a simple profits disclosure bill. We don't know the California oil refiners' actual profits, and we don't know it on a monthly basis. We needed to know it. And getting that bill out of the assembly was really hard. We got it out by one vote in a supermajority Democratic state. The oil refiners still have a lot of power in Sacramento, but having the governor on your side is really big. Now that we have this new law in effect, that oil refiners are literally going to have to post their monthly profits per gallon uh, in January, that gives us the ability to be tr- see what they're, what they're really making. It, it requires the oil refiners to disclose how much they pay for crude oil and how much they make on the gallon of gas that they sell at the other end of the refinery. And if we do the math and subtract the two, we know what their gross profits are. And we know their gross profits, that lets us do all sorts of things and say, look, we need a baseline of profit. If you make more than this, we're going to take it back. We know that from the investor reports uh, that were filed in the second quarter, that the oil refiners in California are making a lot of money. They made uh, an unprecedented $26 billion just in California refineries, from what you can tell from the West Coast margins. We don't have the California refineries margin. We have the West Coast refinery margins. They were making a dollar or more per gallon off the gasoline they're selling here. And that was before this big run-up in price. This big run-up in that was when gas prices were about $1.25 more than U.S. prices. Now they're, as I said, $3. So we're guessing they're making $2 or more per gallon. And that's just that's just pig in the trough greed. We need to take it back. And with the governor on our side, I have no doubt that we will have, have the legislature's attention. And with the legislature's attention, we should be able to pass a windfall profits tax, if not before January, uh, shortly thereafter, that takes back the profits they're making now. We would obviously make it retroactive. So as you were saying earlier, Jamie Court, You'd have to describe this as a perversion of capitalism, wouldn't you, where a company makes more money by producing less? I mean, how bizarre is that? <laughs> it's exactly what it is. And it's the way it, the way it came to be is we, we allowed this cartel to form in California. Five refiners controlling 97% of the oil, a gas, sorry, 90% of the gasoline made. Their refineries produce 97% of the gas. And so what's happened is we've allowed this cartel to uh, dictate the rules for way too long. They've consistently closed down refineries and refining capacity, even though the state's grown. And recently they announced they were going to shutter two refineries and turn them into biodiesel and alternate fuels. That, 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 that's just going to make the supply scarcer and the price higher. And the thing is that, you know, it was it was. It was, it was the fault of, of many of the Democrats, actually, who let this happen. Uh, the consolidation happened under Kamala Harris's watch as attorney general. She allowed some of the big uh, consolidations. But nonetheless, we're here to deal with it now. And the only way we can unring this bell is with a windfall profits tax, maybe with a stronger enforcement of our antitrust laws. We know from uh, court cases, there's one in San Diego that has some really good evidence that these refiners actually work together. The traders talk about supply. They try to keep competition out in the market. They, they work together to cooperate to keep the price as high as possible and the supply as low as possible. And that, that is a textbook collusion. But no one's been able to successfully prosecute them yet. Um, there is a case in San Diego. I don't know how it's going to go. 
The attorney general has a case against one of the big market players, but those cases take a long time. So the windfall profits tax is something that's more immediate. Uh, it, it basically is going to say, look, when we're seeing these big profits, the oil companies can't keep it. It'll be interesting to see what the oil companies do to try to strike back against this, because they have a, a very profitable market as it is. If we say they can only make 50 cents per gallon or 70 cents per gallon, not $2 per gallon, how are they going to react to that? You know, if oil is becoming uh, scarcer and scarcer in California, the oil we take out of the ground is dirtier and dirtier. It's harder to refine. Only 30% of the oil that goes to California refineries comes from California. So we are at the end of our oil, which is why the phase out of drilling is, is smart, smart for the environment, smart for everybody. But, uh, the, you know, over the next couple of years, it's going to be a, a brutal uh, standoff. Uh, we're going to have probably this referendum on the oil well drilling qualified. That means uh, in 2024 ballot, we're going to have a referendum on whether there should be a safe distance between oil drilling and the communities. We'll have the windfall profits tax hopefully in effect so they can't keep profiteering and price gouging on us. It's going to be really interesting to see whether we can get this industry under control or not. But Jamie Coat, my understanding is that the big oil companies have not invested in refineries. In fact, they've been selling them off. So who owns these five refineries in California, which are, as you described them, the cartel that's gouging the California consumer, where gasoline in California is between 6 and $7 a gallon, and that is almost twice the national average? Well, there are big oil companies. There's Chevron, which is one of the biggest oil companies in the world, uh, has the majority of the market. Uh, it's Phillips 66. It's Valero. And uh, PBF is the newest player. PBF bought the refinery that was Exxon's refinery in Torrance and one up north. Uh, so they're, they're big oil companies. They uh, Only some of them have what we call upstream operations, meaning they only harvest their own crude oil. Chevron, Chevron harvests its own crude oil. Some of them have to uh, buy crude oil from the other folks. But the way they've made this type of money, you know, dollar per gallon is really unheard of. And like I said, we could probably double that is because they, they had long-term contracts to buy the crude oil. So they were not paying the world price of crude oil when the Ukrainian crisis brought the world price of crude oil up over $100 a barrel. They were paying whatever their long-term contracts were, yet they were charging us gas prices of $6 or more that reflect that world price of oil. That's how they made those profits. Uh, of course, the companies that harvest their own crude like, crude like Chevron, and I believe Phillips 66, they they make even more money because it doesn't cost them anything to harvest the money, the crude, but they can they, they can charge more for the barrel, for a barrel of gas. That's why we saw these huge profits, uh, because they were not paying uh, the world price for crude oil, but their gas prices were reflecting the world price for crude oil. Things are a little different now. You know, we're the price of crude oil has come down a little bit, uh, but more importantly, the oil refiners now have, have gone to their old tactic, which is what we've experienced the last 10, 15 years, where they're bringing their refineries down from plan maintenance, sometimes for accidents, but mostly for plan maintenance. And when they do that, the price of gas shoots up. And when we've analyzed the gas price spikes, when there are these spikes in prices, sudden increase in strike, it's almost all pure profit for the oil refiners. Every time we've had one of these, we've analyzed in the last 10 years, it's always pure profits because it doesn't cost them more to make the gas. And that's how the governor knows this is, this is, this is a real issue for Californians, that and the profit reports. And that's why he can say, you know, they are, there are windfall profits and we need to take them back because it's getting to be too much. 
But he also said that they offered no explanation. Is that true, that they simply are that arrogant that they can gouge the California consumer and without needing to explain what the hell's going on? Yeah, I mean, it, 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 their only explanation is that the, get, the, the price of environmental rules and taxes are what's driving the price. Now, we know the cost of environmental rules and extra taxes in the state. It's about 60 cents. Uh, if you take the oil industry's actual numbers, it's 69 cents. 69 cents. I, I mean, I literally have the WISPA a sheet, the Western State Petroleum sheet, that says how much more is per gallon. And if you back out federal taxes, which we all pay, and federal excise taxes, it comes out to 69 cents. And that's taking their numbers. And yet we're paying, as you said, $3 more per gallon. Uh, it's, it's, it, it, and those are the only explanations they give. The other explanation is, well, refineries are down. It drives up the price of gas. But it's not a, a cost to them. It, it just allows them to drive up the price of gas. So that is, that is it. There is no good explanation. They do give these phony explanations, but they're rather transparent at this point. So there, there's no investment then in building new refineries. There's no way to create competition to break up this cartel. That's a great question. We've tried for years, and no, they work to keep out new competition. Uh, they work. Uh, we, we have memos from Exxon from years ago when Exxon advocated higher environmental standards to build refineries. Exxon advocated higher environmental standards to build refineries to keep the competition from building new refineries. They'll do anything to keep new refineries from going online. And it's really hard to get a new refinery online. They build extra capacity on the refineries they have, but they generally not, do not build new refineries. So there is no uh, hope of getting new refiners in this market. It is a cartel. It is a closed cartel. And they work very carefully not only to keep refineries out, but to keep boatloads of fuel from coming in. That is something that the San Diego antitrust case exposed, how they work hard to keep new supplies from coming to market. And they can do that because they control the docks at the refineries and the distribution channels by which the gas is sold. So they're able to keep new supplies, not even refineries, but supplies made elsewhere from coming to market. So what can citizens do? I mean, the, the oil companies greenwash us all the time. Chevron shows pictures of pristine environments and tell us how much they care about the environment. We see this across the board and how much they are involved in uh, in trying to find alternatives and, and invest in, and all of which is just complete lies. So... Is there a counter campaign from citizens that can be launched to shame these people if indeed it's possible to shame them? Well, I don't think we can shame the oil companies, but we can shame the elected officials. And when this windfall profits tax legislation gets going, people can go to consumerwatchdog.org and learn how to join it. And they can make sure their uh, representatives vote for it. Uh, that's the thing we need. We need accountability in Sacramento. This is an accountability problem, not just for the oil companies, but for the elected officials. And when the elected officials know people are watching, they will approve a windfall profits tax. A windfall profits tax will make sure we're not getting gouged because if we are, we'll get the money back. But the Democrats want to have a windfall profits tax and the Republicans are saying, no, we should, well, we should cut the state gas tax, which is ridiculous. Well, I, don't, I, don't know, I, don't know, I don't know if enough Democrats want windfall profits tax in Sacramento, uh -huh. unfortunately. That's not exactly the case in Sacramento. There are a lot of Democrats in the pockets of the oil refiners that don't want to apply a windfall tax, profits tax to them. We're going to have to flush them out and make sure they go for it. Uh, that's, it's going to be a challenge, but we're going to do it with the governor's help and with the help of citizens. 
Well, Jamie Corder, thank you so much for joining us here today. Thank you. Appreciate it. And again, I've been speaking with Jamie Court, who's the president of Consumer Watchdog, a consumer group that has been fighting corrupt corporations and crooked politicians since 1985. He has led dozens of major political campaigns to reform insurers, banks, technology companies, oil companies, utilities and political practices. And the Capital Weekly has named him in its top 100 list of unelected movers and shakers in California politics. And his latest book is The Progressive's Guide to Raising Hell, How to Win Grassroots Campaigns, Pass Ballot Box Laws and Get the Change You Voted For. We're going to take a beach station break and back looking into whether it makes sense to build high-rises in Florida on the ocean fronts, often eliminating wetlands and mangroves that are a natural barrier to storms that are increasingly devastating due to climate change. Welcome back. I'm Ian Masters, and joining us now is Sung Ren Pung, who is the professor and the director of International Center for Adaptation Planning and Design in the Department of Urban and Regional Planning at the University of Florida, where he conducts research in adaptation planning for climate change like sea level rise and extreme weather. Welcome to Background Briefing, Sung Ren Pung. Thank you. Well, thanks for joining us, and obviously there's been an awful lot of coverage of Hurricane Ian and the destruction that it wrought across Florida. But now it's worth looking into, one, how much it's going to cost to repair the damage, but two, how is are we going to, or how is Florida going to prevent further damage? And that's where you come into the situation in terms of the work that you do. So let's begin with the damage assessment. I'm hearing reports that as much as between 50 billion, the losses are between 50 billion and 250 billion. So it's hard to pin them down. What do you understand the the cost of the damage so far? Yeah, uh, that's, I'm not involved with the assessment of the cost of damage, but based on our assessment of the cost of property, uh, I think it's uh, uh, damage could be uh, in the two hundred billion dollar range. And obviously, Hurricane Andrew, in the aftermath of that, building codes were improved, and it's worth noting that you can see some of the in the television footage of the destruction that some buildings are standing and others are not, and apparently that's attributed to those that did do the upgrades. Uh, from the building codes that came in after Hurricane uh, Andrew. So will it be necessary to upgrade the building codes now following the fifth most powerful storm in American history, Hurricane Ian? Yeah, uh, this is a good opportunity for us to reassess the uh, effectiveness of the building code. 
And I, I saw uh, pictures that uh, new buildings, uh, that building according to 2007 building code, are standing, uh, withstand the hurricane e, uh, in very well. So this is a good starting point um, to uh, have a discussion and the re even requirement of all the new building, have a new building code. Uh, in addition, uh, I think it, uh, we have to also re-examine the building code, whether that is uh, efficient, uh, uh, effectiveness, uh, effective to uh, withstand future catastrophic hurricanes like Yin and sea level rise, because the hurricane is different from the sea level rise impact. And in our, in our previous uh, uh, Building code, we did not uh, adequately consider the sea level rise. Well, it was uh, pretty catastrophic on the barrier islands like Sanibel, and then also in Fort Myers. So, is there an issue here with the natural protections that you get from wetlands and from mangroves that have uh, been removed by developers to put these buildings? tall buildings right on the shoreline. Yeah, uh, it is a common sense that uh, mangroves uh, really provide a natural protection for the sea lions. So if you remove that, uh, that we, we lost the uh, natural protection. So we needed to also re-examine uh, what is the natural-based solution to protect us from sea level rise and, and, uh, and the hurricanes in the future. Yeah, so uh, I think for the re, you know, re better, be, uh, building, back, uh, building back better scenarios, uh, we really need, need, need to examine some of the uh, practice as well as the policy so that we can uh, re in, enhance the resilience of the community. Well, so for the... example, yeah, for example, the uh, uh, currently uh, Florida law requires the state financed construction uh, need to conduct a sea level rise impact project. Uh, it's called sleep study um, prior to uh, commencing construction of the uh, coastal structure. Uh, actually, effective uh, July 1st, 2022. But this this bill did not require uh, other constructions financed by you know um, private uh, sectors to do the similar study, and I think it's time that for for us to even uh, to require that study so that we we understand the risk. You know, the risk assessment is the first first step for us to do any kind of a reconstruction. Uh, building code. Building code is uh, about the building, but we need to understand the environment that the building is, uh, is built on. So I think that is also very important, even more important than the building itself. Well, the taxpayer, you and me, are going to be paying for it, aren't they? President Biden on Thursday said that the federal government will cover the majority of cost to rebuilding public buildings like schools and fire stations. And he also went on to say that 
in terms of the damaged homes and, and property, uh, the federal government will provide individual assistance up to $37,900 for home repairs and another $37,900 for lost property, everything from automobiles to a lost wedding ring. So the public have a stake in this. So the question, to my mind, uh, Sung Ron Pyeong, is why are they building buildings in right on the coast in uh, areas that are so prone to hurricanes, and we know because of global warming that the hurricanes are going to get more and more intense. This one hit the shoreline at 150 miles an hour, but you could have much stronger hurricanes in the future. So is this fair for the American taxpayer to subsidize the need for people to have beachfront property? Well, uh, certainly uh, this is a, a good relief for the existing uh, homes who have uh, catastrophic damage uh, to the property. So that's uh, uh, a you know, welcome uh, gesture from the federal government for existing homeowners. Uh, however, looking forward, uh, we needed to have a discussion about you know, whether we should build on the same spot or uh, take other adaptation measures. Uh, so first, we needed to have a, like a risk assessment, really look at the area uh, to see if that is a proper location for new buildings. Um, and they, if, you know, based on the risk assessment, if it's not, uh, then we have to think about, you know, where do, do we um, build in new buildings? Uh, if, if there's a, a assessment say that it's still, it's possible to rebuild, but then we have to think about uh, adaptation measures. What are the adaptation measures that we should do to prevent catastrophic damage in the future? Well, we've already had a building collapsed in South Miami a while back, and that was a result of seawater erosion on the foundations. And routinely you get seawater now coming through uh, storm gutters, etc., with high tides and king tides. And now, of course, with the hurricane, you had so much seawater. How much of a problem is that for the existing buildings and in the case of the building collapse in uh, South Miami, it caught people by surprise, even though people have been aware of the the seawater seeping into the garage. Yeah, that the the, the actual cause of that the building collapse is not uh, published yet, so we don't know exactly how how much uh, seawater rise contributed to it. Uh, it's a difficult task to pinpoint the extent to which the sea level rise contributed to the corrosion of the foundation of the building. However, uh, there is no doubt that uh, sea level rise uh, is an important factor in, the, in, in, in that area. And not only for that building, but for other existing buildings as well. So that's why we need to rethinking about this risk assessment for any new buildings, and uh, also re-examining the uh, vulnerability of the existing buildings. Uh, this is uh, something that we should do uh, as, um, going forward, 
uh, we don't want to wait for another catastrophic event happens um, before we do something about it. Well, the the vice president overseeing hazard and risk management at CoreLogic said that Hurricane Ian will forever change the real estate industry and city infrastructure in Florida. Insurers will go into bankruptcy. Homeowners will be forced into delinquency and insurance will become less accessible in region across Florida. So that's a pretty grim picture, is it not? I mean, for the short term, and again, the costs are mounting and the likelihood of, of even more powerful storms in, in the future is growing. So I guess the question is, how much longer do we do this? I mean, how, what is the limit of what tall buildings right on the ocean can can withstand? Because if 150 mile an hour is pretty pretty intense, but if it goes up any higher, is there a limit to what kind of a building code would be sufficient to prevent these buildings from collapsing? Okay. Well, there are two issues about this. One is the uh, wind, uh, wind damage from hurricanes. That, uh, based on the uh, new technology, new uh, structure, and we could uh, technically, engineer, from an engineering point of view, can build a building sustained a very strong uh, hurricane. Uh, so that is not a big issue. Uh, the bigger issue is the uh, the sea level rise uh, will continue. To, you know, hurricanes come and go, right? So if you build a building specifically for hurricanes, you know, it's not as big an issue as sea level rise. When the sea level rise, the sea level is continue rising every year. So uh, if you have a strong building that sustains strong wind, but this, the, the water comes in uh, to the building. So what are you going to do with that? And uh, you, there are certain some adaptation measures like uh, uh, you know, fraud proving techniques, but uh, that, is, that kind of a solution is temporary. So we have to really think about when the sea level rises, if you're building high buildings, of course, at the top levels, maybe still you know, standing, but then uh, what, what about the infra- infrastructure to move people and uh, goods to the buildings? How do the people uh, get mobile um, to other destinations? So those are the issues that we have to think about. And uh, who is going to supply those uh, public facility roads and the facilities to those buildings that they know the city is rising and continue to rise? Well, as of now, though, only 13% of homes in Florida have insurance and only 47% of homes have flood insurance. So that's pretty extraordinary given, um, I mean, this storm was supposed to be one in 1,000-year event in terms of the amount of rain. But uh, again, it's becoming the new normal, isn't it? So how did... How does insurance keep pace with climate change? Well, uh, that's a big issue. Uh, I mean, they, uh, if uh, the insurance uh, see uh, 
uh, a big risk and uh, stop uh, reinsure um, property properties on the coast, that will be uh, a big problem for Florida residents. And also, it will be make people rethink about living on the coast areas. So think about it. If you if you cannot buy insurance, uh, you live in the coast areas. Then what are you gonna do, right? So that will probably make people readjust the uh, property buyer behaviors or adjust the perception about living in the coast areas. So there, there will be uh, causing some changes down the road if insurance pay out, uh, insurance uh, get out of the Florida and there's no insurance you can buy. So just in the last few minutes, what is happening politically in the state of Florida in terms of, as I mentioned earlier, after Hurricane Andrew, building codes were improved and clearly the state government agreed on it. And I'm sure there's some people that, you know, resisted, but it, it happened. What kind of political support is there for insurance reform, for upgrading the building codes? Can you comment on that? Yeah, uh, uh, I'm sure that they are discussing this. Uh, discuss this. Um, uh, my sense is that uh, the uh, legislatures and the, uh, the state government will really look at that. Um, should we rebuild uh, according to a high standard? And I think uh, they, uh, they, com- uh, they will consider that. And the most important issue, as I talked about before, is you know, going forward, we should uh, require all those new buildings go through a risk assessment and really uh, think about uh, uh, whether the government should issue a permit to build to new buildings that build in the uh, flooding-prone zones or risk-prone uh, zones, so that's something that I hope the uh, the legislator will take that issue on. Uh, so two issues: one is uh, um, you know building new buildings uh, according to a high standard of building code. Second is reassess the areas with uh, high vulnerability and high risk um, to make uh, requirements about having conducting a risk assessment. And then based on the risk assessment to de- determine whether that area is appropriate uh, for uh, new buildings. So just in closing, though, uh, is there a difference between the the extent to which the, the government, state government will respond to wealthier homeowners who have condominiums right on the ocean as opposed to those people, poorer people living in the flood zones whose, whose buildings have been completely wiped out? Yeah, uh, hopefully they will treat them the same. You know, uh, but in reality, uh, there will be different stakeholders uh, and uh, they have different uh, demand. So uh, hopefully they, in the, we have a fair uh, pro- process that including all the stakeholders on the table to discuss those issues and come out with a policy that benefited to everyone, that fair to everyone. Well, Song Ram Peng, I thank you very much for joining us here today. Thank you. Thank you for the opportunity.
I am grateful. And again, I've been speaking with Sung Rang Peng, who is a professor and the director of the International Center for Adaptation Planning and Design in the Department of Urban and Regional Planning at the University of Florida, where he conducts research in adaptation planning for climate change like sea level rise and extreme weather. This has been Background Briefing. I'm Ian Masters. I'd like to thank producer Graham Fitzgibbon and assistant producer Asher Price. If you missed any of today's program and would like to explore our vast archives, you can find us at backgroundbriefing.org, where we include extended interviews searchable by topic and have made it easy for you to sign up for daily email updates that provide links to resources, articles, and books discussed on the program. Also, you can find links there to subscribe wherever you get your podcast, and we also encourage your ratings and reviews on these platforms. Find us on Twitter and Facebook at Ian Masters Media, and please do help us reach more listeners by sharing this program with friends, family, and colleagues. And to help us sustain this program into the future and assure it remains free to all, please take a moment to support us by going to backgroundbriefing.org donate or to publictruthmedia.org where you will find our non-profit Public Truth Media Foundation, where your tax-deductible donations, large and small, keep us broadcasting. And I'll be back again tomorrow with another background briefing at backgroundbriefing.org. Bye for now. The guy that lived next door in 305.